Hi guys, George here. You're about to listen to our final episode of Work Inspired Season 1, and it's jam-packed with great advice and inspiration. You're going to love it. We've been so fortunate to have some of the world's best leaders in our show this year. If you're a new listener, there are so many good episodes to binge on. If you've listened before, thank you. We've got some exciting plans for 2021 and Season 2, so be sure to subscribe today so you don't miss a single thing. All right, on with the show. Are you ready to change the way you think about work? Join leaders from the world's biggest organizations, international best-selling authors, trailblazers, and innovators at today's fastest-growing companies. These are the top minds in business, marketing, design, and real estate, here to explore how great work gets done. I'm George Lucas Pfeiffer, and you're listening to Work Inspired. Our guest today is a seasoned leader with an incredible history managing teams at some of the world's largest organizations. He's currently the chief marketing and communications officer at MasterCard, as well as the president of MasterCard's healthcare business. Please welcome Raja Rajamanar. Raja, thank you so much for being on the Work Inspired podcast. Excited to have you here and excited to learn from you today. Thank you very much for having me here, George. Looking forward to our conversation and uh, we'll share what our thoughts I have. Excellent. Well, I was hoping you could start by just talking a little bit about how you got to where you're at today. You've got an incredibly impressive resume. Uh, You've had some great experiences. I'd love to kind of hear your professional story. So as they say, I'm an old dog. (laughs) I have got (laughs) about 36 years of experience in total. Uh, around the world. I started my career after my uh, chemical engineering and MBA uh, in India. I started my career with a paint manufacturing company as the founder flunky of their marketing department. Uh, And then from there, after three and a half years of a wonderful stint and learning there, I moved to Unilever, where I worked for about seven, seven and a half years, half of the time in sales and the other half of the time in marketing. Then I moved to Citibank in Dubai, Uh, And that's where I uh, started the marketing and sales department for the credit cards business and to eventually go to manage the P&L for the consumer bank for the Gulf region. Uh, And I moved to uh, London after six, after seven years. And I was the head of Europe, Middle East and Africa for all the consumer assets, which is all the products where you're lending as a bank to the consumers, which is mortgages, auto loans, personal loans, credit cards, etc., Then I moved with Citibank again to uh, United States, uh, and I was in the role of global business development for about a year. Then I became the chairman and CEO of Diners Club North America, uh, where I helped turn the company around over three and a half years. And from there, I came back to the mothership uh, as the head of core credit cards for North America. And then I moved to the healthcare after that joining a company called Humana. I was there in the healthcare for four years. And in 2013, I joined MasterCard. And uh, over the last seven years, uh, I have been its chief marketing and communications officer. And I'm also the president of the company's healthcare business. So this is my career journey in total. It's in a very incredible career. Uh, I'm I'm really interested to hear, based off of the the number of years you've been around sales and marketing, have, what have you seen kind of change? Uh, let's let's leave this year off the table for a minute because this year has clearly been a year of great change. But uh, as far as the role of marketing goes, what's different in a mar- in the marketing role today than maybe 10, 20 years ago? 
So I would say that marketing actually has gone through several phases of evolution. I call them the, I call them the paradigms of marketing, right? The first paradigm of marketing is all about product marketing, very product-centric. To say my product is the best performance-wise, looks-wise, packaging-wise, everything, and it's available at the right price, therefore, people will come and buy my product. The assumption is people are very logical and rational in their thinking. But people figured out, marketers figured out that people are anything but uh, logical and rational in their purchase decisions and decision-making. So that led to the evolution of paradigm two, which is all about emotions. People actually act based on feelings, based on emotions, uh, rather than on logic. So if you, if you tap into the emotional sphere of people, you can lodge yourself in people's hearts and you can own that space. It's not very easy for you to be displaced and you can win. And emotional marketing has gone to such an extent where marketers discovered that you don't even have to talk about the product. You talk about just emotions that matter to people and they go and buy your product. MasterCard is a classical example. Our entire priceless campaign when we launched until date, we don't talk anything about the product or about the benefits. We always talk about what is really of value in your life. And that's truly priceless. For everything else, there is MasterCard. You know, it works brilliantly. And we are not the only one in our Coca-Cola users, Pepsi users, a lot of companies that are into emotional marketing. The third paradigm, which came about probably in the beginning of 1990s, is a direct result of data, the availability of data and the democratization of data analytics and the birth of the internet. So marketing till 1990s was one, but in 1990s, it completely took a somersault. And here we have got digital marketing, the birth of digital marketing, right? And then in 2007, with the birth of Facebook, and also the uh, revolution are called iPhone. Again, marketing had completely changed. I call it the fourth paradigm. Things like social media has come up for the first time. We never had any social media. The ubiquity, the always present, always on consumer devices, these smartphones, they changed marketing yet again totally. And that's the phase we are in. We are in the fourth paradigm right now. And what I say is we are at the verge of actually the fifth paradigm uh, but we'll talk about it a little later because you asked me till now. So till now, marketing has gone through four significant changes of uh, uh, paradigms. That's fascinating. Is Are these paradigms shifts where they're something that's completely new or do they build on one another? So you started off with the product information being important. Does that completely go away and then you switch to emotion or do you have to still combine some of the quality and some of the features of the product plus the emotion or moving into the digital or the data and the social, are there, are there components from each paradigm that kind of linger or merge into the next? So the first and the second paradigms, actually, if you look at them, the second paradigm in some cases has the product and in some cases it is to the exclusion of the product. But paradigm three and four were always buildups on the previous paradigms. So when you have data and internet for the third paradigm, data and internet, either to generate emotions or to push the product and its benefits and features either way. So that was actually a combination or leverage of both the previous paradigms. Same thing with the fourth paradigm, 
where, for example, in the social and uh, mobile kind of marketing, you still leverage data of the third paradigm. You still use the internet of the third paradigm. You use the emotions of the second paradigm. You also use the more the product features and sets of the first paradigm. So it's a combination of these. So I would say other than uh, between one and two, for three and four, it is basically subsuming the content of the previous paradigms in the most appropriate way and leveraging them. How important is sales channel in the effectiveness of a paradigm? You know, if you talk, if you if you think about an in-person sale or a relationship-based sale, as opposed to an e-commerce transaction, uh, are certain paradigms more effective than others based on sales channel, or is it is it more of just an era and a movement, a period in time uh, that's more important? So we should uh, distinguish here a couple of things: sales versus sales channels. If you look at sales as the act of consummating, uh, because if you are talking about you're pushing the consumers towards your brand or towards your product, then you want them to do something. That is the closing of the sale, right? The act of sale is very critical because otherwise, even if you do everything possible to make the consumer feel good and all, but at the end of the day, it doesn't translate to sale all your activity before is gone waste, right? So sale is important. Now, when you look at sales channels, there are multiple types of sales channels. A marketing channel can be a sales channel too. So most of online shopping is actually, online shopping is a sales channel. E-commerce is a sales channel where the act of sales does take place. Then you have got the traditional sales channel where you got the salespeople, you got the distributors, you got the retail stores, and you have got the brokers. If you're talking of products like insurances, that's the second, that's the whole thing is about the channels. Now, the point is at every stage, based on the first definition I said of what sales is, irrespective of which paradigm you are in, that sales becomes very critical. Otherwise the rest of it is all pointless. That's one of the things I love about business and especially marketing is there is so much change and there's so much learning that you can do, right? There's so many uh, different components and whether it's building up your skill set or just looking at these trends and different avenues in which you can market and brand and sell, uh, there's just so much to dive into. I'm interested as you put together teams, because you're you know working at a world-class organization, you're, I'm sure, looking for the best talent and the highest performing team you can you can find. How are you handle, handling continuing education? How are you handling the continual development and making sure that your team's able to stay on top of these trends or look forward? I mean, we haven't really talked about 2020 yet and beyond, but how, how, you know, how important is the role of continuous learning and education at your organization? Firstly, uh, in fact, the topic at the top of my list is educating my employees, educating my team members, right? I'm blessed with a phenomenal, phenomenal talent in the company. But the talent doesn't necessarily have all the skills that are required to be successful in the future. So when you're talking about the evolution of the various paradigms of marketing, you see that most of the brilliant marketers have come in from the qualitative side and not the quantitative side. They're creative, they're imaginative, they're innovative but they are not uh, very savvy when it comes to data, when it comes to technology. 
Now, then you have got the more recent crop of marketers who are coming, brilliant in their own ways. They know data, like, like you know, they're absolutely fantastic. They're on top of it. They understand technology, but they have no clue about the foundations and fundamental aspects of marketing, whether about the consumer psychology, the design elements. They go through brute A-B testing, for example. Okay, put the, put the banner here. Let's see if it works. Okay, shift it here. Let's see if it works better. Compare A and B. And it's the test and learn, test and learn, which is one way to do it. And they are successful, particularly for performance marketing. But when it comes to the management of the long-term health of the brand, medium-term health of the brand, understanding consumer psychology, understanding the purchase dynamics and the, the nuances, they are just not there. Now, I have got these uh, types uh, of the performance marketers, and I also have the classical uh, marketers. What we need is a combination of both these on the one hand. So you need to cross-train people and expose them. So what for, what are the things, for example, what we have done uh, is uh, we created uh, online programs where people can help themselves. In some cases, we made it mandatory for people to go through some courses, like Digital Marketing 101. Every person on the team has to be going through it and be certified. Otherwise, they will not be considered for promotions or job rotations. So now 100% of my team has gone through that. So this is a mandated program. And then there are optional programs. Likewise, we call professors from some of the universities. Like one of the professors uh, uh, from Yale is taking 12 lessons uh, of 90 minutes each on behavioral economics something which is very critical for marketers to really understand. We have started a book club. So I, I read about 50 books every year, religiously. Not all are marketing books, and I read all kinds of books, and but 50 is what my quota is, my target is. So I see which are the books which I think my team will benefit. So just last month, we launched our book club, where we make the book available free to all the team members. And we encourage them to read. And then we have got a Teams group where we are chatting and trying to make posts saying, hey, I like this. I don't think this particular uh, you know, aspect talked in this book is good, et cetera. So the first book that we had launched with is called Persuasion Code by Christoph Morin. Beautiful book, talks about how the brain thinks and structured and so on. He is the father of neuromarketing in many ways. And people are now beginning to slowly engage. They're getting used to deal with one more messaging, uh, uh, you know, messaging service, so to speak, on top of all that they have got. But the idea is for people to learn, make learning a habit, and try to see uh, how we can apply those learnings in the context of our job and make it fun through social interactions and so on. We're going to do this going forward, and our, and, and our hope is to have 12 books every year that my team would have uh, uh, read and assimilated and, and understood. So this is, uh, uh, the other thing is I would also say that marketers of today uh, have got a significant gap, whether they are performance marketers or the classical marketers, they have got a significant gap in terms of understanding business, understanding the financials, understanding communications, which is public relations and so on. So what we need, we are trying to do is to broaden their understanding. So we got a finance 101 course as an example. We're also looking at job rotations. We're also now beginning to have external mentors from other organizations to be mentoring my team members. So it's a whole focused effort to equip my team 
to be at their best, to rise to their, uh, you know, uh, level of uh, capabilities, and we have to really enable them. So therefore, the point, long answer to your question is, we are all over this and talent is my number one priority. I love it. You talked about a number of things, some of which were mandatory programs, some of which were optional things where people could help themselves. I'm wondering, is learning outside of edu- the education system in the corporate setting, is learning a skill? Do people need to develop the ability to learn or is it a natural qual- quality that somebody comes eager to do? You know, I, I, cause, cause I, I find that there's this balance between mandated corporate programs for education or career development. And then there's self self perpetuated. I want to, I want to grow. I want to climb the ladder. How, I mean, is, is the, um, is the desire or the ability to learn while working or to continually improve oneself, is that something that you can improve like you would a technical skill? So what I would say is there is an innate capability that you cannot ignore. Number two, there is a motivation. You might have the capability, but not have the motivation, right? And uh, the fact is different people are blessed with different gifts. Not everyone needs to have the same capability in every single area, right? That's why you've got artists, they're outstanding. But if you ask that artist to go and do some spreadsheet with all the macros and all that, and you say, why don't you learn it? It just might not happen unless you are a Leonardo da Vinci, right? Then you can figure out everything and you solve everything in life. But we've got to be realistic that people have gravitate to some of their core competencies, recognize that and play to their strengths. Even as you try to take away some of their handicaps or gaps that they have got. So for example, when I mandated that everyone has to be uh, you know, uh, uh, doing the course on digital marketing 101, the reason why we mandated is not to uh, shove something down people's throats and say, you have to do it. You know? The reality is, if you don't understand digital marketing in this day and age, how can you be an effective marketer, right? And that's something which is very critical that we have to recognize. So I'll tell you another example. I've got some of the best branding people in the world on my team, best brand marketers, very design thinking, design-oriented aesthetics, and they understand the you know, finer aspects so brilliantly. I cannot convert them overnight and say, now you be uh, performance marketers. Okay, and, and keep running these you know, day-to-day promotions, minute-to-minute and all that. They will hate it. So it's a question of an individual's uh, natural proclivity or motivation to something and what they are gifted with. So try to maximize and optimize the gifts and help them most even as you prepare them to be at at least a particular minimum level to be able to effectively function as a part of the team. Uh, and otherwise, it, the one will be talking Greek, the other will be talking, talking Latin, and they don't understand what's happening. So if you want to really make it into one cohesive, coherent team that's really working together in a harmonious fashion, you need to have people learning. And one of the key criteria when we are hiring people, we talk about is what is the learning curiosity of this individual? It's not the learning capability, it's the learning curiosity. So to your point, some of it can be trained, absolutely, right? Uh, like, for example, there were some topics uh, which, you know, uh, as I was sort of myself going through, I would absolutely detest going through them. Okay, like, for example, some regulatory and policy matters. 
No, but as a marketer, if I don't understand regulatory and policy matters, I will be completely ineffective in my role. So I had to push myself. Then slowly when I started getting to a level of understanding and depth, this is about 20, 25 years back, I said, hey, I understand its relevance. I understand its purpose. Therefore, it's not just a drudgery, which it was in the initial stages. (laughs) But post facto, I said, this is something which is valuable. So today, both on the policy and the regulation side, I stay at the top of it, whether it is GDPR or California, consumer protection, et cetera. I'm on top of this. And you understand that you can also shape these. And when you understand the purpose of something, your proclivity actually becomes stronger towards that field. Speaking of digital marketing 101, let's talk about this year for a second. 2020 has been many things, and one of which is a year of great digital acceleration for almost every industry. Talk to me a little bit about how the pandemic that we've gone through this year and what we're still going through as we record this has impacted how your team works and operates. So this pandemic has actually, in a weird way, opened our eyes to many possibilities. And on the other hand, it also validated some of the hypotheses that we came up with. So I'll just give you two quick examples. The first one is about three years back, I was doing the strategic, uh, what do you call, uh, uh, visioning, so to speak, saying that where is this world going? And what are the kinds of dynamics that we will be in the midst of and so on? And in that, one of the points I hit upon was saying that, look, marketing is going to be facing it's going to be a, uh, bearing the brunt of a lot of crisis of different types. It could be data security crisis, privacy crisis, reputational crisis, financial crisis, competitive crisis. There are so many crises that will be there. I was actually interested that how come marketing does not have a risk management function within marketing? So I said, we should actually go and create it because there are enough risks and I want somebody to really focus on it. So I asked my previous CFO, Ellen, said that, hey, Ellen, can you actually take this as a new role where you will be overseeing risk management within marketing globally? So she jumped in, she said, yes. And then the work that she has done is fantastic. So we have got like, you know, for example, the different types of risks, the probabilities that they will have. And if their risk happens, what is the magnitude of impact? What are the mitigating action plans? And if the risk happens, how do you quickly move into a crisis management mode and contain that risk? Now, we never anticipated COVID, but we had all the building blocks in place. So when COVID happened, without missing a beat, we just cut over. So for example, uh, one of the things was our whole marketing was very much pivoted in and grounded in experiences. So we are doing heavy experiential marketing. Suddenly, where is experiential marketing when people are all sort of sitting at homes? So we said, okay, we still have to go through that. Take experiences to their homes. So we digitized our experiences. Now, we never realized how effective it was going to be. And I was personally very pleased. I said, wow, digital experiences compared to physical experiences, the reach is higher, the economics are better, the impact is fantastic, and the experiences can be truly global. So I can be sitting in India And I can have an experience in Brazil or an experience in Brazil can be brought into my home in India, which is fascinating, which was something I would would say a new dimension or a new door has opened uh, to the possibilities. Other one, 
we used to travel like crazy, starting with myself. I would travel at least 200 days in a year. And suddenly I'm grounded. Initially, I felt a little lost. I said, oh God. But then what we are discovering is that, you know, you're not missing a beat. The effectiveness is not coming down. The economics are fantastic because there's no travel and entertainment expense. Your efficiency and time utilization is phenomenal. So in the morning, I'm in Germany, literally, you know, face-to-face on Zoom. And in the afternoon, I'm in, uh, uh, you know, uh, what you call US. And by night, I'm in Australia. You truly are now operating in a global sense in an unprecedented fashion. And the fact that we have got this visual connection and visual contact is terrific. Same thing with events. Now, believe it or not, this year we had done so many conferences virtually. MasterCard hosted summits. So we created, normally we would have trade shows and we would have a lot of these conferences. Now, this year, not an exaggeration, but we have got participation of X times, several times than in a normal world, normal situation for a fraction of the cost. That's phenomenal. And people are all sitting at home and working and... uh, you know, we have been very flexible. We have been very understanding and how they should be enabled. Like, for example, if you know uh, uh, a young mother is staying at home, she has got young children to tend, attend to because she doesn't have babysitters. Uh, and she has got family members who are demanding food or whatever else it is there. So she has to balance very sensitively, sensibly between uh, the work and, and, uh, and her personal life. And the kid wants your attention. The kid wants attention. Uh, it doesn't care whether you have a conference call or your boss is online. They just want their food. They don't want their attention. So we as managers have to be sensitive to their realities, understanding, be empathetic and enable it. So for example, some of the markets, we decided that from nine to 10 in the morning or eight to nine in the morning and 12 to one in the afternoon, no meetings. After five o'clock, no meetings. That give, gives some kind of a, a, you know, compartmentalization. Otherwise it can become 24 by seven for people. Uh, and that's not fair to them. So I think remote working actually took a very different way of understanding people's circumstances and accommodating our work practices. Uh, And uh, I think it's been working very, very well. And if I can just add one point to this is the proof of the pudding is in how your, your employees are feeling. So this year, for example, for marketing and communications, we call it integrated marketing and communications because it's one function. Uh, The employee satisfaction scores were absolutely top notch. And we have been, we have grown in our scores, improved our scores on every single dimension compared to the previous year. So in an an year of pandemic, that's something which I feel very grateful uh, that we have been responding well to the employees and our employees are recognizing that. It's impressive. Whereas the you know, with the vaccine just started to roll out. So for you know, in some ways there's a light at the end of the tunnel as far as the pandemic's concerned. And as we go into 2021 now, I, I know people are looking to a return to some form of normalcy. From a marketing and communications perspective, where collaboration is so important and you know, and and creative kind of partnerships and, and thinking, are you guys is there a plan to get back together or because the remote, the remote side is working so well, are you going to keep, keep doing it remotely and has collaboration not really suffered because of being remote? So what I would say is it's not black and white, right? There are phenomenal benefits of all of us coming together physically. See, there is an informal meeting and there is a formal meeting. 
What can happen when you're working remotely is typically only formal scheduled meetings. Whereas what happens in an office is that informally you bump into somebody and you talk, oh, what are you working on? What am I working on? You might be gossiping, you might be doing anything, but there is a level of interaction which you miss when you're not physically in the environment. Uh, and I think that's an important component for you to either, uh, you know, come up with more effective solutions for the company or better culture for the company or better bonding amongst people. I think that's that's very critical. So there is a real role for the physical environment and people getting together, right? And on the other hand, uh, we I also realize that you don't need to be physically there together all the time. And uh, so from that perspective, I would be very flexible in, term, in terms of the future and saying that, hey, let's have a hybrid model. And I see the future going where you say, maybe I don't need to be there in office all the five days a week. Maybe I need to be only for three days a week or two days a week and other days I can work from home. Or maybe I work for one week and I don't, I'm staying away from work for, you know, uh, for a week or two weeks. Uh, so you, you, we have to be really open and flexible to that kind of a, uh, model and then evolve over a period of time. There are some departments where absolutely you need to be there physically. You cannot help it. Like you now, for example, if you look at uh, the you know in the healthcare. Now, if you have a hospital, you cannot sell work only remotely. You have to be there. <laughs> you know, but marketing and communications. I think we should be able to have uh, a higher level of flexibility, and uh, uh, that's how I would look into the future. Uh, uh, and also a lot depends on the efficacy of the vaccine itself, right? I don't want to push people to come back quickly and put them in harm's way if there is any harm, right? And uh, you know, if we have survived successfully for the last seven to eight months without being in offices, a few more months is not going to kill us. But on the other hand, uh, I would be very anxious to get back as soon as the vaccines are all administered and there is a uh, clear evidence that things are coming down. And most importantly, I want to make sure that people feel comfortable in their own minds you know, because they should feel, hey, I I'm going. It's not like they're getting into a war situation where they're putting their life on the line. They don't have to. Right. So I want them to feel comfortable and uh, come back to work when they are ready. Yeah, your thinking is so in line with what we're hearing from other leaders. I love that you said it's not black and white, where a lot of us thought it was before this pandemic happened, was it's either you're in the office or remote work is someone's in a different state, you know? So now when we come back, it's the flexibility thing is probably going to be the number one trend moving forward. And then you're right, the mental piece of it, you can't just assume that everybody's on the same page with their level of comfort, even after the vaccine rolls out. So I think uh, everything you're saying makes makes a lot of sense. Um I want to uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the book that you've got coming out. But before I do, um, I, I was wondering because we've talked about mentorship or education. Because we talked about education, we've talked about the changing role of marketing and professional growth. If you were mentoring somebody, um, what would be a, a piece of advice that you would offer someone looking to grow professionally in their career? So I would say that there are a few tenets to your growth, uh, both as an individual and as a professional and in your career as well as in your life. So first I would say is network. Network like crazy. 
human beings are emotional right and they respond to emotions extremely well including giving you promotions or not so it's very important for you to make sure that you have got incredible network uh in the company outside the company that you work in number one number two realize that the world is changing crazily day by day if you take a pause you get obsolete very rapidly because so much of learning is happening you have to make sure that you allocate your time every single week to learn it can be reading books listening to podcasts talking to a subject matter experts uh, or taking reverse mentoring or mentoring is going to be very critical so learning agility is critical at this point in time that's number 2 number 3 don't box yourself into a functional specialization if you are a marketer don't be a marketing specialist if you can avoid be a general manager who has a deep expertise in marketing which means seek out rotations job rotations and experiences outside of your immediate area of specialization that's number 3 number 4 the world is becoming smaller by the day and it's much more connected don't be hung up on one geography if you are really looking for a global big career make sure that you are mobile if you can if you are able to and get experiences in other parts of the world i think that's going to be very very important the last but not the least is uh, i would say that it's very critical for you to have a good balance between your personal life and your work life even if you accomplish everything phenomenally on your work side uh, having a miserable life will undo all of that stuff and you look back and say what has what have i accomplished at the end of the day having that balance is critical for your health because if you have, don't have health everything else collapses you need to have an emotional support system whether it is your immediate family your spouse your friends your network call it whatever that's extremely critical you need to be grounded in yourself properly which means meditation mindfulness a little bit of spirituality uh and i would say uh contribute to the community not for uh just you know checking off hey, i did a voluntary one day it's not for credits it's basically it has shown clearly that when you try to help other people your level of happiness goes up dramatically so if you are for example you don't have to necessarily go and cook in the soup kitchen if that's not your gig but if you want to do mentor some youngster when you see that youngster blossoming and growing as a result of your mentoring at least in part it is such a fantastic feeling it spurs you into a, you know into a different uh, what we call uh, uh, a realm altogether realm altogether i would say these are things which are critical that you balance them together with your work some people take stupid pride saying that i've been working 24 hours a day i have not been taking any holidays at all in my last few years of my career that means you are stupid you don't know how to manage your time so balance life with you know and and i i think that's going to be very critical i would say these would be the top points and i i would say one last point is people think that if you work hard you succeed well and you make lots of money acquire all the assets and then you'll become happy the reality is if you are happy which is a state of mind as opposed to connected if you are happy you will be more successful and that vicious cycle of the virtuous cycle keeps building upon itself 
So I would say in a very philosophical sense, it is a pursuit of happiness, which is more important. It's a frame of happiness mindset that's more important than anything else. Ah, so wise. And, you know, you're not the first person on the show that has told me that mentorship is not a selfless act that, you know, the idea that mentoring somebody is good for you too, that, that, and, and, and connecting that to happiness and man, that's great advice, Raja. I love it. Um, let's spend a few minutes here at the end of this episode talking about the future and this exciting book that you've got coming out quantum marketing. Uh, tell me a little bit about the book and, uh, some, maybe a, uh, a big takeaway from the book that we can expect. Perfect. So, you know, I, I feel very uh, uh, you know, happy that I have been able to write this book called Quantum Marketing uh, over the COVID. <laughs> so it happened. One of the positive outcomes of COVID has been for me the ability to write the book, the time to write the book, which I have done. And it's being published by HarperCollins Leadership and coming out on the 9th of February. The book has actually its inspiration in physics quite ironically, right? Physics is the science with which you try to understand how things work around you in the physical world. So what is gravity? What is electricity? What is magnetism? And classical physics used to explain all this very well, and we could understand uh, the subject and the, therefore the phenomena. However, when the, we started getting into new realms, like the outer space or the subatomic particles, or when articles or objects are moving at the speed of very rapid speed approaching light, classical physics just could not deal with it. It failed. So a new uh, field of physics was born called quantum physics. Today, most of our learning of our uh, everything around us is based on our understanding of quantum physics, whether it is in uh, uh, interplanetary travel that you're talking about, or the satellites, or telecoms, and all these things are based on quantum market, uh, quantum physics. In the same way, I say that in the world of in the world of marketing, we have already gone through four paradigms, and each time marketing was reinventing itself. What we, we are right now at the verge of the fifth paradigm, which is an unprecedented level of changes in technology. You know, if you look at the number of sheer number of technologies, more than a dozen technologies, you know, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, wearables, Internet of Things, 3D printing, you know, you got drones, you got 5G, you know, autonomous cars, smart speakers. There are so many things which are coming. Each one of them is going to fundamentally change marketing forever. Classical marketing, which we have been practicing till now, will not be able to deal with this new future. This new future is not years ahead. Actually, the new future is happening as we are speaking right now. And you need to reimagine marketing completely to be able to succeed in this new paradigm. You need to reimagine every aspect of it. And that new field is quantum marketing. So quantum marketing is to marketing, what quantum physics is to physics. And the key takeaways I would say is, a uh, couple of things I will tell you. Like, for example, uh, when you look at some of the theories and practices of marketing, it's actually all theories and practices of marketing right now, they will be put on their head. They'll be stood on their head because their environment has changed so much that those are not relevant anymore today, that these theories and frameworks. Take, for example, uh, advertising, right? Advertising as a consumer, I hate advertisements because they interrupt my good experience. When I'm trying to watch a YouTube video, some songs or some videos of animals, that stupid ad comes in between and interrupts. 
And now YouTube has two ads, not even one. There's a one off two and two off two. So, and then you have to pick up where you left off. As marketers, we keep talking about giving a friction-free, seamless, smooth experience. These stupid ads are anything but that, that destroy. Now, imagine if as a marketer, I'm feeling, as a consumer, I'm feeling that way. As a marketer, that's a nightmare to me, right? Because it's not just me uniquely. So what do people do? Either they switch away from these uh, channels or at the time the ads are playing, they do something else. They're texting, messaging. So the ads are anyway gone waste or they put ad blockers. There are more than 600 million ad blockers in the world today or they go to paid uh, content, which is ad free. So it's an ad free environment. Like, you know, you've got Amazon, you've got uh, uh, Netflix and you've got YouTube, right, et cetera. So if advertising people are what are telling you they hate it, the consumers are telling you they hate it, and they are voting with their wallets, as marketers, how can you still hold on to that stupid paradigm of advertising? And you need to reinvent some other way of reaching consumers and connecting with them and influencing them and motivate them to buy your product or brand. That requires a total reimagination of that part of marketing. Now, what I'm doing in this book is questioning every single aspect of marketing and then trying to give a new framework of how we should think about it tomorrow. So my book is in some sense a playbook for the future of marketing, which is here and now. So very happy about how it is coming and some of the initial uh, feedback that I got from some subject matter experts and some of my peers was very gratifying and very, very positive. So I feel good about it. And uh, it's already available on Amazon uh, and a whole bunch of other booksellers for pre-ordering. And uh, 9th of February is when it will be available physically in bookstores. Well, I can't wait to read it. It sounds incredible. Uh, Raja, thank you so much for your time today. You've been a treasure trove of uh, wisdom and, and great advice. Can't thank you enough for being on our show. Thank you, Josh. Much appreciate having me here and hope to be again connecting with you sometime soon. Thank you so much. Uh, Stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to rate our show. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Work Inspired podcast so that you don't miss any of the incredible guests we have planned for upcoming episodes. We'll continue to find the best and brightest minds in business so that you can learn, grow, and succeed, and so that we can all work inspired. Work Inspired is brought to you by BOS, a leader in commercial working environments and a Hayworth best-in-class dealership. Experience our 360 approach and discover the team, tools, and techniques required to navigate the complexity of your next workspace at BOS.com. If you have ideas, feedback, or would like to be featured on our show, please email podcast at BOS.com. Thank you for listening. This has been a Workspace Digital production. If you're interested in launching a podcast at your organization, please email info at workspace.digital for a free consultation.